I'm going to turn to Matthew's Gospel and the chapter 12 this evening. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. And we'll just have a short reading this evening from verse 38 down to verse 42. So Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. We'll read God's Word and then we'll have a word of prayer. We'll pray together as God's people. We'll lay a hold upon the Lord once again for His blessing upon the preaching of the Word. So Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. And we will read from verse 38. So let's hear the word of the living God. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights, in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The Queen of the South shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Amen. And we trust the Lord will bless his word to our hearts. Let's just unite in prayer and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. And God's people enter into prayer. Pray the Lord will come and bless us even this evening. So let's pray. Eternal and loving God, we bow before Thee. We thank Thee for the meeting thus far. What a privilege to praise Thy holy name, to join together with those of like precious faith who have been washed in that precious blood and to lift our voices unto Thee. And yet, Lord, we come now to this principal means by which, O God, Thou hast given unto the church the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have read, O oh God, of what the world thinks about preaching. They think it's foolishness. But we thank the Lord it is the means which thou hast ordained to save them that believe. And we pray, Lord, for the preaching of the gospel tonight. I pray for myself as a preacher. Lord, I don't want to be selfish in this prayer. But I stand as the one who has the responsibility, who has the blessed privilege. And yet, Lord, I feel mine own inability I feel mine own unworthiness. And I thank thee for the one who is worthy. I thank thee for the Lamb. I thank thee for his blood. And I thank thee that you can cleanse me and will cleanse me afresh even now in that precious blood and fill me full of the Holy Ghost. Lord, I long to be filled with the Spirit. I long that the Holy Ghost will come and apply the Word to all who are here. For those who are watching online, O oh God, come we beseech of thee. Save the lost. Rescue them. Apply the word with mighty power. We pray, O God, that thou would deliver them from going down to the pit. Have mercy upon the ungodly soul. Remember our children who sit amongst us, those who are not yet saved, who, O God, are uh, forming, as it were, the gospel in their mind and are beginning to feel the, the pricks of sin. And we pray, O God, that thou would work among our children and our young people and that would bring them to a knowledge of sins forgiven. Do us good, Lord. Shut us in with thyself. Take away all distracting thoughts. 
We pray that the stillness of heaven will come down and fill this sanctuary. Bless thy people once again as they hear the gospel. And we pray that thou would be glorified in it. Hear our prayer. These things I ask in Jesus' name with an eye to his everlasting praise and glory. Amen. There are some very clever people in the advertising industry who use the power of suggestion to influence the consumer. There are some words written on the side of a building, and I believe it's in the road to Moira, which say, if you're looking for a sign, this is it. In the corner, you will see that it's an advertisement that belongs to a coffee shop. Now, those words, they seek to imply that as you've been driving along, you've been thinking about whether to have a coffee or not. And if you are to have a coffee, then you will receive some sort of confirmatory sign that you should stop for one. That sign at the side of the road just happens to be the sign that you should. Now, whether you were thinking about coffee or not, you're now thinking about the coffee shop if the words caught your eye. And that may or may not lead you to stop for a coffee. Therefore, the the clever person who came up with that little advertising slogan or idea has maybe captured your attention and maybe gained your money. The phrase, if you're looking for a sign, this is it, or this is the sign you have been looking for, is used for other products and services in advertising campaigns, and it draws on the human desire to know what to do, to know what is right, to know what to believe. People often, from their hearts and their minds, they cry out, not necessarily or consciously unto God, but they call out, give me or show me a sign. They seek some unusual happenstance to confirm what they should do or what they are to think. Now, in the count that we will deal with tonight, there are those who are seeking for a sign, a supernatural, out-of-the-ordinary event or act. Now, all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they report two encounters which Christ had with sign-seekers during His earthly ministry. Matthew and Luke, they record both encounters, while Mark, it just gives a brief two-verse report of one of those encounters. Now, in Matthew chapter 12, in the opening, thir- for the opening 13 verses, Christ vindicates the disciples for plucking and eating ears of corn by using the Old Testament Scripture to confute the naysayers. He heals a man with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and this shows that works of necessity and mercy are permitted on the Sabbath day. To avoid the fury of the enraged Pharisees, Christ withdraws Himself, but the crowds do not withdraw from Him. We read that He healed them all, those that followed him for healing, miracle after miracle of unnamed individuals experiencing powerful, instantaneous healings not even recorded in Scripture. The Savior told him not to publish his name abroad because he sought not his own popularity or his own fame, for he came not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him. In doing so, Christ fulfills remarkable prophecy and prediction made by the prophet Isaiah, that he would not lift up his own voice in the street, 
trying to draw attention to himself. Now, one miracle is focused on in verse 22, where the Savior heals a demonic who was blind and dumb. The result of that was that the Pharisees, they chose to ignore the testimony of the Holy Spirit concerning who Jesus was. And they accuse him of doing what he did by the power of the devil. This, some commentators believe, is the high point of the religious leader's rejection of Christ. They blasphemously put God, the Son of God, in league with the devil, even though the Holy Ghost bore witness to them concerning who Jesus Christ really was. For this sin against the Spirit, they would never be forgiven, not in any age in the future, nor in that age in which they lived. Christ told them that they were rotten trees, bringing forth rotten fruit, that they were a generation of vipers, speaking evil because their hearts were evil, and by their evil words they would be judged, they would be condemned. The Lord Jesus had spoken as strongly as possible to these men, to these scribes and Pharisees. And that brings us to verse 38, where we read, Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. And tonight I want to look at these verses that we read this evening, 38 to 42, under the heading, The Sign the Seekers Weren't Seeking. The Sign the seekers weren't seeking. Firstly, we have the evidence sought. Verse 38, it tells us there, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Now, it seems to be that the scribes and the Pharisees, they say this to Christ immediately after he had called them corrupt trees and vipers who had blasphemed the Holy Ghost. And they asked us of Christ, they say this to Christ, to divert the direction of the conversation that had made them feel so uncomfortable that it painted them in a bad light before the people. Hence, we read the word answered. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered after Christ had spoke to them in such strong terms. Now, sinners often do this when they are convicted. If you get a little close to the sin that's in their life, and the guilt rises up within, well, then they will seek to change the direction of the conversation. They will even seek to control the conversation so that the preacher or the Christian that's witnessing to them does not get to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart. Or if they begin to look bad before others, well, then they'll seek to paint someone, someone else in a worse light than them. Then they will not seem as bad. And isn't that what sinners do? And this is exactly, I believe, the tactic that the scribes and the Pharisees were employing here. They were seeking to divert the direction of the conversation because Christ had said all these things to them, condemned them for their sin against the Spirit, called them corrupt trees that bring forth corrupt fruit, called them a generation of vipers, said that they'd be judged for their evil words. And so they immediately asked the Lord for a sign. They tried to divert the attention from themselves onto the Lord. And the Greek word for sign, they're asking here to see a sign from the Master. It's found 77 times in the New Testament, and it's translated miracle or miracles 22 times, wonder or wonders three times, 
token once, and then 51 times, either sign or signs. Now, signs as well as miracles were considered supernatural occurrences, those things that authenticated that God was with the person or that God had sent that individual. A sign was, a, was really a miracle that served to confirm that all that was spoken was true. And in that sense, Christ had probably performed thousands of signs with as many miracles that His Word and His witness was true. Now, the Jews, they always wanted to see some supernatural verification of everything. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22. We read it at the start of the meeting, and he pointed out that characteristic within the Jew always seeking a sign, for he says there, for the Jews require a sign. It was characteristic of them to expect certain wonders to prove that a man was a messenger who was sent from God. Their history was full of men sent from God who were able to perform wonders in the Lord's name. In great measure. That's why the Lord gave ability to the apostles and those who worked with them to do signs and wonders and mighty deeds because that was the expectation level of the Jew. And the Lord was confirming His message through the apostles by their mighty signs, by their wonders, by their deeds. Now the scribes, when they would ask something like this in public, the people, they would feel that this was a question attached to their understanding of the law. In other words, if they were asking of Jesus, this of Jesus, this sign, well then, this must be what the law requires of him, a sign. The assumption would be that the scribes, with all their learning, they must have determined from the law that if he truly was the Messiah, then, then he should do a sign to confirm that he is. And that is what the people would have probably thought as the scribes came to him and asked of him, we would see a sign. They would have thought, this, is, this must be derived from the law. Here's these men with all their learning, all their understanding. If this truly is the Messiah, if this is the one we're looking for, well then surely this man will do a sign for us. But really this was a subtle way of the scribes and the Pharisees insinuating that Jesus of Nazareth had not yet sufficiently validated his claim to be the Messiah. There was yet a sign that needed to be done. It was putting a question mark over who Jesus Christ was. We read in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, that this was done. It tells us they are tempting him. They were trying him to see that if he actually had the power, the authority, to do these things that they required of him. Prove yourself by doing something extraordinary. That's what they were saying to the Lord Jesus. Now, the implication is that they would then believe Him if they did this for them. Now, what a sham pretense by the scribes and the Pharisees. They pretended they pretended that they wanted just a little more evidence in order to be convinced and become His disciples the healing of the sick, the cleansing of the lepers, the casting out of the demons, the raising of the dead, was not quite enough evidence for these men. But the people, they had plenty of proofs 
of Christ's identity. Furthermore, in John chapter 7 and the verse 46, their own testimony concerning Christ's words, never a man spake like this man. And it says that not only there, that proves that not only his deeds, but also his declarations were ample proofs of his person that he truly was sent from God, that he truly was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now, if we compare Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, the other account where sign-seekers come to the Lord Jesus, we see there in that account that they come asking Him for a different type of sign that He has already given in His miracles. A sign from heaven is what they ask for. Something spectacular to do with the sky, with the sun, with the moon, with the stars. They, they decide how Christ can prove himself to them. What Christ had already done was not enough. You know, that's exactly the state of many today. They would claim a willingness to believe if only they had enough evidence or enough proof or enough signs that God existed. But listen, sinful man has enough evidence that there is a God. Creation that's all around him the conscience that is within him, the canon that is before him, the Christ that walked among him, there is enough evidence to prove that Jesus is the Christ of God, that God truly and really does exist. How much more evidence do you need? People often imagine, you know, if only if only, you know, there was some sort of miracle performed in front of me that was performed in the days of the Lord Jesus, well then, well then I would believe. But frankly, this very account is evidenced that undisputed miracles do not necessarily produce faith. The problem with most skeptics is not the lack of evidence, but it's rather a satanic blindness to the truth. They do not have true intellectual problems with the gospel. Oh, I just need a little more knowledge, a little more truth, a little more preaching, a little more understanding what they have, the moral problem with the gospel. They don't want God telling them how to live. They don't want to repent. They don't want to trust in Christ. They don't want to walk in the ways of the Lord. The people did not need more facts. They needed faith. They had seen the fact of the miracles which proved who Jesus was, who He claimed to be. That was an abundance, but faith was absent in these people. Sin blinds the minds of unbelievers. Even if the sign was standing right in front of them as it was here in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unbelief rejects all signs and proofs and keeps asking for more evidence. Faith in Christ, it cannot be produced by signs and wonders. Faith is a gift of God. We're so clearly taught in Scripture, it's produced in, heart, in the heart by the operation of the Spirit of God upon the preaching of the Word of God. For we're told, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Don't pretend, church attending, familiar with the gospel sinner, that you just need more knowledge, more evidence, more proof, and then you will believe. You have enough proof. You have enough knowledge. The problem is 
that you are yet in your unbelief, and for some of you, it is willing unbelief. Like the scribes and the Pharisees, you are determined, you are determined not to believe in the Son of God. And that's dangerous ground to be on. In light of what Christ has just taught about the sin against the Spirit, should the Holy Ghost bring home powerfully to your heart that Jesus is the Christ of God, to be in willing unbelief, when the Spirit of God witnesses to you that Jesus is the Christ, is dangerous ground. You're on ground where you could sin against the Spirit. And Christ said to these individuals that there's no forgiveness, not in that age, nor in any age to come, though they live a thousand years. You don't need a sign. You need salvation. That's what you need, and that's what you need to ask the Lord for, the mighty saving work of God wrought within your heart. If you were truly willing, if there was this willingness to believe, well then don't ask God for a sign. Ask Him for His salvation. Don't hide beside, behind some pretense if only I had a little more evidence, if only I had a sign, trust in what Christ has said and what Christ has done, my dear friend, that's enough. That is enough. The evidence sought. But secondly, we have the exposure stated. The exposure stated, verse 39 but he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. Now outwardly these men were pious. They put on a good show by addressing Christ as master. They thought themselves to be honorable and faithful to the things of God. But the Lord here exposes the heart of the individual who does not take him at his word and who is filled with unbelief seeking signs. He states here, Christ, what they're really like. Now what the Savior does here, He not only includes the scribes and the Pharisees in the statement, but also the Jewish nation at large who had rejected Him in their unbelief. Though He had walked among them, casting out devils, healing the sick, raising the dead, feeding the hungry, etc., etc. Remember, by the end of His ministry, only 120 assembled in that little room waiting for the promise of the Holy Ghost. So this was an unbelieving nation and generation. So he is including here the general public that had gathered around him in this exposure of their hearts. Now they were exposed here as being evil. An evil generation. That's a pretty simple enough word to understand what evil I don't need to give you other words to describe it, but digging a little into the Greek and tracing it back to the root, the root word, it means poor. Poor. These people were bereft of anything that was morally good. And you know, that is something that would cut across these individuals, especially the Pharisees. The Pharisees, well, they reckoned, and the people also, they reckoned that they were the standard of moral goodness in society of that day. And yet the Lord exposes these sign seekers as being evil. He saw their hearts. He heard their inward grumblings. He knew their inward thoughts, and He called them out for what they were. Now, people on the outside can be pretty, have a pretty high standard of goodness. 
You may be like that sinner, exemplary in your morals, an upright lifestyle, but, but what is your heart like? Well, the Lord tells us what the heart of the unregenerate man is like, what the natural heart is like. In Jeremiah 17 and the verse 9, it tells us the heart is deceitful above all things, listen, and desperately wicked. The Apostle Paul, he says that no good thing dwelleth in this old flesh, this old nature, this old man of mine. And that's why, sinner, you need a new heart that has been washed in the precious blood and filled with God's good spirit. Evil, bereft of anything that is morally good. And that evil was expressed by their dictate to Christ. They demanded of Him a sign. They wanted Him to bend to their whims and, and their wishes to satisfy their standard of acceptance or rejection. And by doing that, they sought to elevate themselves above God. Just exactly what the evil one sought to do in his temptations of Christ. And the devil tempt Christ to do as he wanted to bend before Him, and to do as He demanded. The sinner has no right to demand anything of God. The sinner has no right. God operates according to His own will, not to yours. Christ also exposes them here as adulterers, an adulterous generation. In the Old Testament, the relation of Israel to, to God was all, uh, often represented by the marriage bond. God as the husband, the Jewish people as the wife. But they had created a breach in that, in that covenant relationship to God. They had violated their vows by apostasy and idolatry. This departure from God to follow after and unite themselves to, to false gods was spiritual idolatry or adultery. It was gross unfaithfulness to a God who had been so faithful to them throughout their history, who had done so much for them, who had given them so much, and yet they were unfaithful to their God. Jeremiah chapter 3 in the verses 6 to 10, Jeremiah condemns them for their adultery, filling the land with stones and stocks. A phrase for idols. The prophet does the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 13 and verse 27. And then in Jeremiah 31 verse 32, the prophet Ezekiel, he brought the same charge to God's people that they were adulterers. The whole of chapter 16 was an indictment against their harlotries and their spiritual adultery. And for that reason, they were carried away into Babylonian captivity. They had violated their covenant with God and God after false gods. Hosea writes often in chapter 7, the very fact even that Hosea's life is used by God to describe the adultery, the, the unfaithfulness of Israel. They were adulterers and adulteresses who had made friendships with the world and had become an enmity with God, as James 4 verse 4 tells us. This was their history. Now, even though uh, after Israel returned from Babylonian captivity, they did not return again to the false gods 
of the nations round about them, they were just as adulterous in Christ's time. Though there was no more idolatry, there was still infidelity. They remained unfaithful to God. They had abandoned their God. Their harlotries were no longer with the gods of the Canaanites, but with their legalism, with their self-righteousness, with their traditions, with their own egos. You mark that, sinner. It doesn't take one to have an idol on the shelf to be spiritually adulterous. It doesn't take an idol on the shelf to be a spiritual adulterer. You might be playing a spiritual harlot in some other way. If you do not love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength, well then you are. You're unfaithful to the God of heaven. You may not be a lover of idols, but you might be a lover of immorality. There are other ways for sinners to be unfaithful to God other than idolatry. And Christ takes this occasion to expose the sad character and condition of that generation in which He lived. And I ask you tonight, what about your heart? What does the all-seeing eye of God expose there? Would He describe you as evil and adulterous? Because he sees, he knows your heart. So we have the evidence sought and the exposure stated, but we have finally, thirdly tonight, the exception specified. Look at verse 39 in the part B. It says, There shall be no sin, there shall no sign be given to it, that unbelieving generation, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Though Christ would not give them the sign that they demanded, there was one sign that would be given, the sign of the prophet Jonas or Jonah. It wasn't that Christ didn't have the ability to produce the sign that they wanted. It wasn't the fact that He could not. It was simply the fact He would not. The Lord works to His own direct of His own will, not man's. And what was His will? Well, His will was one with the Father. He came to do the Father's will, which was to accomplish redemption. And that would involve going into the dark depths of the billows of a judicial death. But in doing so, he would know what it is to be brought again from those depths. Hence the reason he speaks of the sign of Jonah. Now we all remember the story of Jonah, don't we? It's that story we have learned from our childhood days. Jonah was called by God to go and preach in Nineveh. But in rebellion, not wanting to go to that great city, he ran off in the opposite direction, found a boat that is sailing eh, the other way, and he jumped on that boat. But God sends a storm. Jonah soon discerns that it's for his disobedience that the storm has come. And so he tells his fellow seamen to pick him up and throw him into the ocean. That they do. And there's a great calm. But a great fish comes and swallows Jonah up. He spends three days, three nights in the dark depths. But as one man commented, a disobedient prophet would make anything sick, and the fish vomited him out on the shore. He goes to Nineveh, he preaches. 
The whole place repented in sackcloth and ashes. And God spared His judgment on that great city. Christ believed the story of Jonah. And in these verses, he verifies the veracity of his Old Testament historical account. It wasn't an allegory. It wasn't a legend. It wasn't a myth to Christ. But something that actually happened. Here the Savior teaches that the story of Jonah had a prophetic element to it. It was as much a prophecy as Isaiah chapter 53. Now, while it doesn't verbally predict anything about Christ. Typically, it predicted the most monumental thing about Jesus Christ, and that is His resurrection. I believe the only time you have an Old Testament type is when it is stated to be so in the New Testament. In other words, if there is an Old Testament type, you can only know that it is a type by the New Testament. And that's exactly what we have here in the story of Jonah. It is a type because Christ refers to it. Now, there can be pictures, there can be shadows, but we have to say that this story of Jonah, it's a true type, a true type of Christ. Now, just as an aside, Jonah himself was assigned. He was assigned to the Ninevites because of his miraculous deliverance from certain death. Do you not think those sailors, those merchant seamen, would have told the story of how the sea was calmed by picking up a man called Jonah and throwing him into the sea? Do you not think that word would have got to the great city of Nineveh? And here is this Jew named Jonah, a prophet of the Lord, and he comes walking into the city as one who had been raised from the dead. And that very fact, along with the power of the Holy Ghost, convinced that whole city that Jonah spoke for God. Jonah's own experience was a sign to the Ninevites of God's judgment for disobedience and also of God's mercy for those who repent. But it was more the typical significance that the Lord had in mind when He spoke of the sign of Jonah. You see, the tomb was to Christ what the belly of the wheel was to Jonah. And that's what the Lord explains in verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the wheel's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The Jews, they had cast Christ overboard from society, just as the sailors did Jonah. And as the sea was calmed by the sacrifice, we'll say of Jonah, so by Christ's death he has made peace for the sinner. He stilled the angry billows of God's wrath that raged against the sinner by giving himself up in sacrifice upon his soul, broke the breakers of divine justice in order that sinners like you and me would enter into the haven of rest. He died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. But though he died... He did not remain in the grave. Three days later, he rose again. Hallelujah. What a sign to the world. His resurrection was clearly a sign from heaven. You see, no one, no one could raise the dead but God. But by his resurrection, Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power, as we're told in Romans 1 verse 4. His resurrection 
was a sign that he was truly sent from God. His resurrection was a sign that he was who he claimed he was. His resurrection was a sign that all that he spoke was true. His resurrection is the sign that he paid in full the price of the sinner's redemption. He was delivered for our offenses, yes, but he was raised again for our justification. That is such a sign that surpasses all the rest, that completes and crowns them all, the resurrection of one from the dead. What a sign to this world. Surely you would think the resurrection of the dead would convince people, but it didn't. In fact, the Jewish leaders, they actually paid the Romans, those soldiers, to lie about what happened at the tomb. They didn't believe. They wouldn't believe. And Christ had already predicted that in His parable of Luke 16, where in verse 31 He says, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rose from the dead. His resurrection was the sign that they weren't seeking for. You see, they thought that they had done away with Christ once and for all, but He is risen. They now had the prospect of standing before the living Christ in judgment, and you too, sinners, someday will stand before the living Christ. The day God has appointed in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He have given assurance unto all men. Listen, here's the assurance that the judgment is coming. Here's the sign. Here's the mark. Here's something that rubber stamps it, that guarantees that you're going to stand before the living Christ in that He raised Him from the dead. The resurrection is the sure sign of the great resurrection of the last day for the judgment. And that's what Christ finishes off with in these verses, the judgment. The judgment's coming. Your judgment's coming. The final word Christ had for these sign-seekers in this encounter with them was severe denunciation by telling them that they would be condemned by their spiritual failure. Their spiritual failure to recognize that He was the Messiah, the Christ of God, to willingly submit before Him and believe that He alone is the Savior of the world. Their condemnation would come from the Gentiles, from the men of Nineveh who repented of the preaching of Jonah, and from the queen of the south or the queen of Sheba who believed the report about Solomon and so came to see for herself that all was true. You see the two elements there of the people that will rise up in judgment. They are those who repented. And she is the queen who believed the report. Repentance and faith. And if you would be saved tonight, sinner, you must repent of your sin. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn and trust as we teach the children. A simple message that even a child can understand. So lack of knowledge is not your problem, sinner. It's not your problem. You're not fooling anyone, not least God. 
that you just need a little more information about the gospel, a little sign, and then you'll believe. Your lack of knowledge is not the problem. You know enough of the gospel to believe. Listen. Listen, sinner, you won't get some spectacular supernatural sign. If that's what you're holding out for, if those are the preconditions you have laid down to the Lord before you'll believe in Him, then you'll just continue on in your sin. You'll die in your sin. And you'll be eternally judged for your sin. The empty tomb is all the sign you need tonight that if you call upon the Lord, He'll forgive your sin and save your soul. That's the only sign you need. Have a little bookmark here of what they believe to be the empty tomb, Gordon's tomb. That's the sign. The price has been paid in full. There is a living Christ. There is one who has conquered death. There, one, there is one who has the power to deliver your soul and set you free from your condemnation. That's the sign that is given. Will you trust in Christ tonight? Will you turn from your sin? Will you do that this very moment? Will you do it now? You need to do it now, lest you meet the men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba as witnesses in heaven's high court against you. May God give you grace to come tonight. May you trust in Him. The sign the seekers weren't seeking. It's an empty tomb. Dear friend, that's enough. Because Christ has done it all. Trust in Him, rest in Him. Come now, come without delay. Lest for you it be too late. Bow for prayer. God's people, you pray. God will speak. I will not be going to the door this evening, but I will linger in the minister's room just for a, a few moments. You make your way along the side of the building in this side door here. You come and speak to me if you want. You want to be saved. Not that I save you. Can't save you at all. I've said that many times. But we can open up the Word and you can seek the Lord. Don't delay. There's no sign going to be given but the sign of Jonah, the resurrected Christ. Eternal God and loving Father, we bow before Thee this evening. Now Thyself has said, if they believe not Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe lest one should rise from the dead. And Lord, it's through the foolishness of preaching. As the Word of God has been preached tonight, we pray that Thou would give those choice gifts of faith and repentance. O oh God, no miracle, no sign can produce this faith, this saving faith that's needed. And I pray that Thou would be merciful tonight. And thou would strive with the sinner, make them uncomfortable. May the Holy Ghost have exposed their hearts for what it truly is.
evil and adulterers, unfaithful to thee. God speak. Remember our children. We thank thee for the simplicity of the gospel. We thank the Lord for the message of redeeming grace through the blood of the Lamb. And we pray that thou would work. Work we ask of thee. Lord, we thank thee for an empty tomb. Oh, we thank thee, as the children's chorus puts it, I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And we thank thee that he paid a debt he did not owe. We thank thee that he was raised for our justification. And we thank thee, Lord, that we are accepted before thee and the beloved. We think of those who are not saved online, in the gallery. Lord, we cannot leave them lost and lone. To have the men of Nineveh rise up against them in the judgment, who had less privileges than what they had. The queen of the south, to testify against them on that great day, by her very presence at the right hand, as one of the Lord's. O oh God, be merciful, we ask of thee. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit be the portion of thy people this night and forevermore, until the day break and the shadows flee away and we're all gathered safely around the feet of the blessed Jesus. Do us good. Bring glory to the Lamb. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.